Um, friends, we've got ourselves a doozy this evening in uh, Daniel chapter 2. I feel like I've been kind of just leading you on this trail for a while here, and you've been ready to get into the vision of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, and tonight's that night. We're going to talk about it. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. I do want to preface right off the bat that uh, this is... Uh, a joke in the theologian world, uh, which I'm not in, but I read their books and get confused, is sanctified speculation, okay? It is sanctified speculation that there's some of the things in prophetic books that we can't stamp and say, this is absolutely it. This is how it's all going to go down. Here's how the future is laid out. Uh, and, and so we kind of come to our interpretations and our conclusions that we think are well-formed. Uh, but at the end of the day, we trust God with it, right? And, and, and so even in this room, as we navigate these things, there might be parts of this where you say, I don't know if I agree or if that doesn't make sense to me or maybe I've, I've grown up in a, in a different interpretation, a different understanding of these scriptures. Let me just say, I love you. I'm glad you're here. I don't think I'm better than you or I know more than you or any of those things. You could be right, I could be wrong. And I think for us in the Christian faith, especially in these areas that are not on the person of Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith, Jesus being God, fully God and fully man, I think there's an opportunity for all of us to love one another well as we seek truth in God's word. And so that we can be humble uh, and we can be kind and compassionate and curious and ask good questions but not do it in an adversarial and... Uh, in a mean way and be rude about it. And so part of my hope tonight as we dive into this is that this may spark great conversations for you as we play in our pickleball tournament. It's like, oh, so you see it that way. <laughs> yeah, 2-2, two -two, uh, right? Whatever that may be, um, I, I just want to broach this conversation with humility and, and do our best to navigate the scriptures. But ab above all else, we're not going to run from these texts. Okay, we're not going to run from it. You notice uh, we don't really just jump topic to topic on Tuesday nights. We've hit topics before and we'll probably hit them again, but by and large, my goal is to walk through the scriptures, um, is to teach them, to open them, and, and for us to be encouraged to learn what God has revealed. And so when we come to challenging passages as such as this one, we're not gonna run from it, we're gonna dive in and, uh, and we're gonna do it with humility and grace. So, Daniel chapter two, verse 31. What we're going to see here is the cosmic sweep of the history of the Gentile nations. You say, what on earth is a Gentile? Uh, well, if you are not a Jew, you don't come from the heritage of the Jews, then you are a Gentile. Uh, do we have anybody in here that is a Jew? I'm, this is, shout out. Okay, one. Okay, so this message, you can leave. No, <laughs> you can be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this is for you too. But, um, this is really a, a sweep of what has happened in the world starting in Daniel and, and the overtaking of Babylon all the way to the second coming of Christ. This is a pretty major sweep in the way that we at DBC interpret uh, this passage in the passages that finish in Daniel and move into Revelation. And so what I'm going to do the way that I'm going to handle this tonight, I'm not going to say the way that we see it and then do everything. Just know that what I'm communicating, there's multiple different views to this. This is just the view that we hold at DBC. Make sense? Okay. So I'm not trying to be dogmatic and say this is the only way that you can see these things. But uh, this would be, as Jesus defines it, the time of the Gentiles. 
Uh, We have a little uh, verse up here from Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where Jesus talks about the time of the Gentiles. He says, and they, which is talking about the Jewish people, uh, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled, 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 whatever that is, trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus is saying there is going to be a time when the Jews are taken out led into captivity, and then Gentiles will be ruling over the Jews, which was not how God designed it in the beginning, but because of the Jews' rebellion and continually rejecting of him, God says, fine, if you want that, have your way. And, and so God says, they're going to take you out. Now, what Jesus is specifically referring to is 70 AD, right? Jesus is around 30 AD, and he says, hey, in about four decades, uh, the the Romans, they're going to come in and sweep shop. They're going to completely uh, destroy the temple, and there's going to be this thing called the diaspora, which is the dispersion based on persecution, where Jews are scattered everywhere. The church is scattered everywhere, uh, and they're facing intense persecution under the Romans, And so Jesus is talking about this and say, this is going to continue until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, which we would believe in the second coming, when Christ comes back, that that's going to end this Gentile reign, where they are the ones that are supreme, and they are the ones that have the Jews in subjectivity. But the times of the Gentiles actually begins in 605 B.C. Does anyone by any chance, if you've happened to be around for the last couple of weeks, know what happens in 605 or roughly 606 BC? Yes, in the back? Uh, when Babylon that is correct. When Babylon seized Jerusalem, 605 is kind of their initial thing where uh, Judah, Jerusalem, their capital, they became a vassal state of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were Uh, And they take the best and the brightest. Remember, there's this guy named Daniel that they take, and he goes through a lot of things. That starts in 605 B.C. They come back again in 597 B.C., and then they really come back in 586 B.C. and destroy everything and pull everyone into captivity in Babylon. That is our line of demarcation that begins the time of the Gentiles, because as we're going to see from that moment in history, the Jewish people have never been a free nation where they have not really been in competition, tension, or someone over them since that moment. Since 605 BC, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, have been subjugated. This land that God had promised them that was supposed to range this whole area that they very, very rarely had full reign over, uh, they still don't have it today. In fact, there were many centuries that Israel wasn't even a nation, a recognized nation on the map. And this is what is called the times of the Gentiles. Now, there are certainly times that Israel has been around rebuilt the temple in 516 BC, but they were always what we would call vassal states, that they were in bondage to other nations. And so we right now are living in the times of the Gentiles. Many of us, except for one, Gentiles. uh, And it began in 605 BC and will span all the way until Jesus' second coming. And so this is what Jesus says here. And Daniel is really the first prophet that starts to expand on what that looks like. He's starting starting to give a detail of what is going to happen in the future. Now, here's what's cool about God. 
is that God knows the future. God knows how all of this will play out. He knows the, the little details and the big details. No, he's not surprised by any of these things. And sometimes God shares little snippets of the future with us. This is often what, what prophecy is. It is a foretelling of future events, mostly centered around a coming Messiah in the Old Testament. But then also other times of what's going to happen in the future to the world abroad or to God's chosen people Israel or to this thing called the church, which we make up. And so sometimes God speaks prophetically and this is what God has chosen to do through Daniel is to share with Israel who is now in bondage to Babylon and then will be in bondage to many other nations that they have a future so that they won't lose hope because God in the end will reign and establish his kingdom forever. So my preface is out of the way. What I want to do is just read the dream and its interpretation. I just want to read it all for us. We're going to start in verse 31. We're going to go down to 45. I just want us to get the fullness of this, okay? I want it to, to wrap in our brains. So we're going to talk about it and jump around a little bit, but I want you to kind of have the, the beginnings and the ends of what's going on. So Daniel is talking to, to Nebuchadnezzar. So when he says, O king, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Daniel says, You, O king, were looking. And behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you. And its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, in as much as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will at not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed." 
and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. It's a lot there, but I think we all understand it, so we can probably just go home. No, I think we've got some stuff to explain. So, um, what I went ahead and did, because if you're a visual learner, maybe like myself, you're trying to picture this statue, and you're like, okay, there's some bronze, there's some silver, there's iron, and then there's this stone and a mountain, and there's a lot of things going on, right? And they happen in succession. So, um, I, I was I was searching around some for some imagery and some uh, like basically statues that explain what some of these things are, and we're going to pull it up in just a second, not yet, uh, but what I want to do first is just outline what's going on here, what these kingdoms are, because we know Babylon is the first kingdom. It is the head of fine gold, and which means all of these other uh, areas, these materials and silver and bronze and iron are also kingdoms that are going to come after Babylon. And here's the really cool thing is that we can look to history. We can look to history and see, well, who came after Babylon? And then who came after the, the kingdom that came after Babylon and then just roll down the history and see exactly how it played out. And this is the beautiful thing. Daniel wrote down the visions that he received in about 550 BC. Anywhere from 600 BC to about 530 BC. Much of the events that he writes about happen many, many, many centuries after he has written this. To the point, and I mentioned this in a message uh, earlier in the series, Many scholars conclude that Daniel, this book, was actually written in the second or first century before Christ, which is 400 years, 300, 400 years after Daniel lived. And the reason for that is because they say this book couldn't, be, couldn't possibly be as accurate as it is about the history of the world. Say, no, there's no way that Daniel would be able to predict the secession of kings in this world. There's no way he would have been able to figure it out. So somebody later on must have written all of these things and then just use a pseudonym as Daniel so he would gain some respect in the community and people would actually read the book. That's what a lot of scholars today would say and the reason for that is because they rule out the supernatural possibility. They rule out the fact that God, the God of heaven, could speak and use Daniel as a messenger and reveal prophetically what is going to happen in the future. They say that can't possibly be, so somebody came along later and just used his name and, and made up this story as though it was happening and he was predicting the future. That's what happens often because it is that accurate. Isn't that amazing? It's really, really cool. But we believe it's supernaturally God working through Daniel as a, as a prophet, as a messenger. And so we have Babylon, the head of fine gold, 605 BC, 606 BC maybe, depending on when they started their invasion. Does anyone know, any history buffs in the room, know who takes over Babylon? Yes. Persia. Persia. Yes. 
Persia takes over. It was actually kind of an alliance between two kings, the, the Medes and the Persians. Medo-Persia is usually what they call it. Um, yeah, they take over in about 539 BC. In fact, when we get to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see this unfold, and it's pretty amazing, and we're going to try and do it on Halloween because it's going to be cool. Um, so there's your sample size of that. Okay, so yeah, we have the Medes and the Persians. We have the Medo-Persian Empire. Who comes after the Medo-Persians? Greece, led by who? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. That is exactly right. Um, they come around in about 333, 331 BC. And then after Greece, Greece reigns for a long time, but uh, Alexander the Great dies, and then he splits his kingdom up into four people, and that never really works out. But after Greece comes who? Rome. Rome, the Iron Legion. Rome shows up in about 63 BC. Uh, they are the people that are in charge when Jesus is, is born. His ministry is happening. Uh, Rome is the one that is in charge. So here's what's cool. We can put this little image up here. This statue, I will warn you, some of the things in here I don't totally agree, but it was just the one that didn't look the worst, all right? So what I really want you to focus on is the statue and then the things in bold, Okay. That's what, that's what we're focusing on for this statue because there's some other stuff. Don't even worry about it. But we have here at the top, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, 606, 605 BC, is gold. And then the Medo-Persian Empire is silver. They're the chest and the arms. And then after them, we kind of have the thighs, which is brass or copper, and that is Greece, the Grecian Empire. Uh, and then after them's, after them's, after them comes the Roman Empire in 63 BC. Okay, so you see kind of how this is layering out. Does that make sense to you? That this is all happening pretty much in immediate secession. Uh, and these, the significance of them is that they're the world powers. There's other nations. There's other armies. There's other people conquering them. But they, this group, had a vast amount of power. They covered significant amount of land. In fact, Alexander the Great covered so much ground, it is astonishing what he was able to do. And then Rome came after him and did even more. And so these are significant because they're world powers, and they are also significant because they were the ones that had the Jews in bondage, that the Jews were answering to these guys for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. So we have those things. You can actually take the statue down now because the rest of it is a little bit confusing. Um, so we have those things that are, are pretty simple. There's large agreement across the board on, on those, uh, those kingdoms being identified with that aspect of the statue. Now there's two parts uh, that most of the differences and disagreements come on. And that is the feet of clay and iron, what that represents, and then the stone cut out of a mountain. Uh, not necessarily what that represents, but when that's going to happen. Uh, so the viewpoint that we're going to take this evening that, that DBC kind of holds is that the feet of clay and iron um, basically represents a, a fifth kingdom. And it's a fifth kingdom uh, that we haven't seen yet. It's a literal, physical, political kingdom that will rule um, in some major ways future. Because after Rome, we didn't really 
There wasn't really anybody else that rose up in a world empire type way. And so we're going to say that that's future. Verse 41 calls it a divided kingdom and that it's connected to Rome in some way. Um, And so even on that graphic, we saw it talking about revived Rome that there is going to be another uh, kingdom or a group of kings that come together in an alliance and a union and people are going to maybe attribute it to revived Rome, that they're going to be the last ones to rise up here at the bottom of this statue. Now we're going to talk more about that. I want to answer that second one. The stone. What is the stone? It's cut out of a mountain. Um, and it's the, the thing that strikes the statue and totally crushes it. Um, and that then becomes a mighty mountain and that is the kingdom of God. This stone that becomes the mountain is, is the kingdom of God. Now, there, there's two beliefs out of this, that the stone cut out of the mountain. Some believe that is Jesus, that Jesus, in his first coming, he shows up, he crushes this statue, and then kind of sets up the church, the spiritual kingdom that grows and grows until it becomes the mighty kingdom of God where he reigns forever and ever, all right? Uh, but what we know for sure is that this stone in this mountain represents the kingdom of God. And the big question is when exactly that shows up. Uh, but first, why is the kingdom of God referred to as a stone? Um, the rock or, or stone image is used really often in the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, of a coming king, of a savior, uh, of a leader. Uh, you can check out these verses. We're not going to read them, but Psalm 118 Verse 22, it talks about the rock. Um, Isaiah 28, 16, and Zechariah 3, 9. So if you're about that life, go check those out because they're really cool. Old Testament uh, really prophecies using the image of the rock to refer to the Messiah. But it's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. Um, It becomes one of the most important figures of Christ as he's explained in the New Testament. You can check out Matthew 21, verse 42. Um, Acts 4.11, Romans 9.33. Am I going too fast? My bad. Matthew 21, verse 42. Acts 4.11, Romans 9, verse 33. I feel like we're in class all of a sudden. And 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. Jesus is often referred to as the stone of stumbling the rock of offense. People couldn't just accept that Jesus was who he was and that what he came to do was what they had to receive. He was the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, but he was Christ, the cornerstone, which is amazing, the house of God. And so even here in the imagery that Daniel is using that God has given him, it's all pointing to God. It's all pointing to Christ that is going to come in his kingdom. Now, here's what's interesting about this statue. Go back to the statue. It starts with the best materials on top. There it is. It starts with the best, the finest, uh, most expensive materials on the top, and then as it goes down, it decreases in value. And you say, cool, why does that matter? And I think it's because God is giving us a commentary on the world. God is giving us a commentary on man-made kingdoms, okay, on the striving of man. And in fact, what's interesting, Daniel chapter 2, the vision of this statue is from man's perspective. 
It's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So this is man's view of the kingdoms of this world. And notice what he even talks about in verse 31. Uh, Look and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. This is how man views the world that man has created apart from God. This is man's perspective. And why that is interesting is because as you move through the book of Daniel, specifically in Daniel chapter 7, you're going to have another vision. And this one's from God's perspective of four beasts. And these are gross, grotesque, like mutilated, combined with a lot of other different animal type things, and they're nasty looking. It's a picture of the same image. The statue and the beast, they're referring to the same nations and the same kingdoms. One is from man's perspective, one is from God's perspective. To man, it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's glorious. To God, it's apart from him, and so it's gross. It's grotesque. It's, it's not what it's meant to be. And so we kind of see these things paired up as, as we move along, but it moves uh, from the, the best materials to the worst materials, meaning as time moves on in history, we aren't getting better. We're getting worse as a world. You can take all the technology that we have, all the military prowess and amazing things that we have invented and strived for in our world, but humanity, by and large, is moving farther away from God. It may start with gold, but it's going to end with iron and clay. Mankind is not getting better and closer to God. We're getting farther from it. We're getting worse. No matter how many inventions and technologies we may have, if we're not growing closer to God, we're getting farther from him and we're getting worse. And as a a result of that, we're doomed to collapse, which which is also interesting because this statue doesn't just decrease in value, but it decreases in weight. Gold is the heaviest. It is the heaviest of the materials that's used in this statue. And then silver's lighter, And then bronze is lighter than that. And then iron is lighter than that. And still lighter than that is clay. So what we have is a top-heavy statue. That it looks really good from far away. You say, wow, look at that. Head of gold, that's amazing. But it's doomed to collapse because its foundation is clay. It's not going to stand. It's not going to last. God makes it clear that the civilizations of this world apart from God are doomed to fail. It's doomed to fail. Now for the more challenging things to interpret, I I just remind you there are a ton of different ways that these have interpreted interpreted throughout history. Uh, Most people are going to fall into three camps on this in the major ways. Um, I'll give you the terms. I'm not going to go into the full detail of explaining them because it's a lot. Um, but the main things are, are a pre-millennial interpretation, an ah-millennial interpretation, and a post-millennial interpretation. And I know those words, you might be like, what is he saying right now? <laughs> and that's okay. I'm not here trying to freak you out. I'm not trying to go over your head. Uh, this is just what really, really smart people have 
come up and deemed these terms. Uh, millennial uh, refers to a thousand years, okay? A millennium. And uh, the viewpoint uh, which a lot of this centers around um, is that based on Revelation, there is referred to in 19, Revelation 19, a 1,000 year reign where God will reign with his people in general. Now, there's, there's, there's the, the crux of the issue is, is this a real, literal reign? Or is this a spiritual sense of a reign, but not a literal, physical thing? Uh, and then pre and post, there's, there's some other debates about that, but is basically pre is, is God going to come back and uh, set everything up because the world has gotten really bad? Or post-millennial saying, God, uh, the church is going to bring into the kingdom where everybody will know him and it's going to get better and better and better until God comes back and it's this beautiful thing. Okay, that's the most I'm gonna explain because we just don't have the time. But if you have questions, we're gonna try and get you some resources and send some stuff out. Uh, we're happy to talk about it and more, but um, again, our goal is not to be dogmatic any of those things uh, because most of you are, we're just introducing you to these things for the first time and I'm not trying to go crazy on any of this. Uh, but we will try and send out some resources that, that give you those viewpoints and where they come from in scripture uh, because our goal is for you to study them and, and really come to, to your conclusions. I don't want you to just take my word for it and because DBC holds to a premillennial view uh, that you should just take it as fact. Okay, so we're going to try and resource you for those things, but uh, really we're going to be handling from a, a premillennial view. All right, so now you can know. Um, so here's the question. What exactly does these, the, the feet, the toes of clay and iron represent, and when will the stone crush the statue? Now the feet and the toes of clay and iron, uh, they represent a divided kingdom. This is what Daniel tells us in verse 41. It says, in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom. Parts of that kingdom will be strong as iron, but other parts will be weak like clay because the mixing of these two materials will make it somewhat strong with the iron, but somewhat weak with the clay. In verse 43, it tells us what this mix is. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, or literally with the seed of men. Uh, in our view, this refers to different nationalities, cultures, and races, basically different kingdoms that are going to come together and form an alliance, essentially. Uh, so all the different seeds of men, all these different nationalities and cultures, they're going to come together and they're going to form a kingdom, a world power, a reign. If I haven't confused you enough in that, uh, we also believe that this is likely uh, what is called a ten kingdom or a ten nation confederacy, which is basically an alliance or a pact. And you'd be like, okay, where on earth does this ten come from? A couple of reasons in that. Uh, first one, kind of simple, but... How many toes do most people have? Ten. Uh, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Uh, in fact, we have another chart here. And this one, I'm not going to explain all of it. But I mentioned this earlier, that Daniel 2, Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, it kind of spans, and it's all talking about the same layout. So this is very confusing, but we're, we're going 
we're going top to bottom, okay? So Daniel 2, you see Babylon, you see Medo-Persia, you see Greece, you see Rome. Here it is, feet, toes of iron, clay and iron, last days, meaning there's being a kingdom that hasn't happened yet. It's future in the last days. Uh, But then look over to the right. In Daniel 7, you're going to see a lion represents Babylon, the bear that represents Medo-Persia, the leopard that represents Greece, an awful beast that represents Rome, and then here you go, ten horns with iron teeth, and then there's going to be a little horn that comes out. We're not getting there. I promise you we're not getting there today, but this is the same beast that we connect to this fifth kingdom, and it has ten horns, ten kings, Often in Daniel 7, when it's talking about these horns, it also calls them kings, people that reign and rule. And so what we would say is that 10 kings from different nationalities and cultures will come together and form an alliance, a confederacy. Most people call this revived Rome, and their belief is that it will be European nations. Uh, That's why everybody freaks out when you talk about uh, the United Nations, the European Union, the world free market, commerce, all of those things. I'm not, you can hold that, whatever. That's a a high degree of speculation I'm not willing to get into. Um, But you you can chase those trains if you want to, all right? And you can find out if all of those things in the EU is the Antichrist. <laughs> I, I've read a lot, and, uh, and it just goes crazy, all right? But what we would see here in this scripture is that there's gonna be a kind of a 10-nation alliance, a 10-nation confederacy that's gonna gather together, uh, and they're gonna be powerful in some sense because there's power in numbers. But they are also weak because they don't really join together in a total unity. In fact, if you read in Revelation, uh, this whole group, this whole posse, they actually break up. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of betrayal and revolt. It's kind of like, if you ever played Zorb with us, people form these alliances and then, uh, and then the alliances always break because someone wants to be in charge. Uh, someone always wants to be in charge. So um, I know that was confusing. I know that was a lot. Uh, but I'll, I'll pull us back down a little bit and, and just maybe make a case for why we believe uh, this fifth kingdom, these feet with the toes, is a future thing, okay? It's a future kingdom. Um, and, and a couple of reasons for that. After Rome fell, physical, literal Rome, right? We move down that map, we move down that statue, and it's like immediate takeover, Persia takes over from Babylon, or takes over Babylon. Greece takes over Persia. Rome takes over Greece. But then after Rome, when Rome fell, there was no world power that came directly after them. There wasn't that rose up and say, oh, now it's them that takes over. It's confusing. There's been attempts of people to say, actually, it was kind of this group, and maybe it was them, and whatnot, but uh, Rome actually split into east and west, uh, and the east and west, they fell at different times, almost a thousand years apart, actually. There's, there's the one part of the empire that became the, the Byzantine Empire, and they lasted to like 1,400 BC, or AD, much longer, and so 
the key for us as we read it is that there's not a moment where we can draw a line in the sand and say, that's where Rome fell and this next world empire took over. And so the reason why we've come to this conclusion is we say, well, since no one, there's no one world empire, much more, there's not a 10 nation alliance that takes over as Daniel talks about, then we believe this hasn't happened yet. So we would say it is uh, all literal political kingdoms that happen one after another, after another, after another, and then there's a gap that moves to the future. And that's what this feet and the toes are. There's another interpretation that it, it moves to spiritual, that what happens in the end is it turns spiritual after Rome. Uh, God's going to set up his kingdom and it's, it's the kingdom of God, it's the church, and that's spiritual. And that's what happens after that. And, and that's great if you wanna jump into that one as well. Uh, but here's what I think is interesting. Uh, the 10 toe kingdoms, if I can say that, it's a weird thing to say, but here we are. Uh, they're, they're all ruling at the same time. It's a simultaneous reality. You can remove, you can take a picture of this if you want. Uh, it's kind of crazy, especially when you're like seven. What is the 69-7 thing? That's confusing. Maybe we'll get to there in another week. But, but here's what I want you to notice in verse 35. Oops, sorry, okay, just found it. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the earth. Oh, no, start at the beginning, sorry. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. All at the same time. So there's going to be a catastrophic blow on this statue, on these world powers that's going to happen all at once. It's going to be simultaneous. And then after that moment, the stone, the, stink, the kingdom of God, the mountain is going to be inserted. I don't know about you, but if I look through history, I haven't seen that moment. There's gonna be people that try and they point to Rome and they will, uh, they'll point to the Germanic tribes that slowly started to whittle away at the power of the Romans, but uh, none of them really have any kind of an alliance at all. Um, we're talking about Germanic tribes like Attila the Hun. Anybody remember him? Uh, crazy guy, wild man. He takes over some parts of Rome, but then uh, you have other ones that are the, the Goths, the, Vis the Visigoths. All these Germanic tribes that kind of step in and take over and they start to move around in that area, but they never have an alliance. And none of them are ever ruling at the same time. And none of them are ended at the same time either. And so if we're going to take this physically and literally, there's never a moment in history where Rome ends and then the nation after them is still around and taken out. So that's why we would hold that this is happening in the future. So I've probably beaten that horse to shreds. So I'm going to keep moving on. But here's the summary. There's a gap between the fall of Rome and the rising up of this 10-nation alliance. And whenever this 10-nation alliance is a world power, that is, in, is when God, or Jesus, will return to the earth in his second coming. He will crush this revived Roman empire and set up his divine kingdom on the earth. And his kingdom will never be destroyed. It will endure forever. This is the mountain of God. 
which I love as Jesus speaks so often, even in the Lord's Prayer. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I know that's a lot to take in, and that was just kind of a load. Um, what I'll tell you is as we keep moving, we're going to go back to a lot of the narrative focusing on Daniel's life. But uh, my goal, if possible, is, is to kind of get into Daniel 7 and 8 and, and 9 a little bit at the end of this semester. And my hope, hope, which you can be praying for, um, is for us to bring in our senior pastor, Tom, and, and for him to walk through some of those things. I can't promise he won't make fun of you and call you an idiot and do all those things because he's about that life. But... Uh, but yeah, our hope is to bring him in and have him explain 7, 8, and 9 and really lay out what these 70 weeks of Daniel are and how all of these things fit in because um, he knows and has studied the last things pretty well. Um, but our, again, our goal is to resource you in these things. And if you have questions, we'll do our best. Uh, but like I said, in, in, in some ways, this is sanctified speculation. Um, and, and so... We take our educated guesses and what we see in Scripture, but we, we don't hold this dogmatically or over anyone else. But I do want to close with an application uh, because that was a lot, maybe heady-wise, and I don't want you to leave just being like, I'm confused, and that was weird. So uh, here's my application. Don't put your hope in the strivings of man-made systems. Just like this statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream looked so awesome and glorious, to him that this was amazing and look how much man has done and how far they've come and how much they've progressed. But in the eyes of God, it's doomed to fail and collapse. And the same for us. So we need to be careful that as a person and as a civilization as a whole, we don't put our hope in man-made systems that are doomed to fail. Because mankind has been doing this since the Tower of Babel. He says, look, if we all come together and build this massive tower, we'll make a name for ourselves and we'll never be scattered. Except they were. <laughs> because God is sovereign. In the end, God will win. And so we take the, up the mantle of, of solving global problems and progressing as societies, and we wrongly put our hope in those endeavors. And I know that probably for some of us, there's fear as to how this is all going to end. You ever get afraid? You're like, gosh, what's going to happen? You know, something happens in the news and you're like, is this it? Is this where, are we about to die? <laughs> is this everything happening? Like, is this okay? You know, we don't really know what's, what's going to happen and how this is all going to roll out. But I'll tell you, I'll, I'll put it this way. Our greatest enemy as Christians is not who wins in the next election. Our greatest enemy, it is not communism, it is not socialism, it is not capitalism. It's not some economic agreement or plan. Our greatest enemy is not some powerful military that could take over America or take over the world. Our greatest enemy is not nuclear war, alien invasion. <laughs> you saw that in the news from Mexico. It's not AI takeover where robots are going to rule the world. Like, what's that one? iRobot or something like that? There's a billion. Wally, -E, yeah. <laughs> Don't be afraid of Wally. -E. That's the application. Uh, <laughs> it's not to be afraid of, of climate change and global warming or pandemics that hit our world. That's not our greatest enemy. Our greatest enemy 
is sin. That's our greatest enemy, is that we have rebelled against God and that one day all of us will stand before God in judgment as he establishes kingdom forever and ever and ever, that his reign will not end and he will open the books and our name is either written in the book of life or we will be judged according to what we have done on this earth. And for all of us, we will fall short if it's based on our merit. But as we sang earlier, there is a merit that is not our own. That we will stand to account. And if you do not have a relationship with Jesus by grace through faith, it's not gonna go well for you. No matter how successful your life is on earth, no matter how amazing and awesome your statue, your endeavors and strivings and accomplishments are on this earth, it's top-heavy, and it's doomed to fail, and you will stand before God one day. Yeah, we could be wrong in some of our speculation on Daniel chapter 2, and that's okay, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming back and will reign forever, and you need to know him because you are either for him or against him, and there is no in-between. So if you don't know him, forget studying Daniel 2 and come to know God and talk to us about a relationship with him because that's so much more worth of a conversation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that uh, we as, as humans can, can study your word and speculate and, and try and grapple with the things that you have revealed to us. And yet we know and we come with humility that we are finite, we are limited, and you are infinite. You are wise and we are foolish in so many ways. So God, as, as we navigate these worlds, as we navigate the future, I pray that our fear would not be in the things of this world and our hope would not be in the things that we accomplish, but our hope would be in you. And we have a trust, a hope that you're coming back, that a stone without hands, a cut out of a mountain without hands is coming back to crush and topple the kingdoms of this world. And you will reign forever and ever and ever. So in our sadness and our fears, we carry it with a hope that it's all temporary that the sufferings and the trials of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the joy that is to be revealed to us. God, we love you. We praise you because your word is good, your wisdom is infinite, and how kind of you to let us delight in it. We pray these things in Christ's name and we worship you now. Amen. We all stand as we continue to sing. Mm-hmm.